0: Good morning, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, you would think that dealing with the pandemic has taught us some valuable lessons about ways to better manage public health emergencies, but has it? We take a closer look at the latest Ready or Not report from the Trust for America's Health. Also this morning, history according to the SAT. One educator's unique approach to preparing for the familiar college entrance exam begs the question why is studying history important when there's no history section on the test? And spring has sprung. It's time to get out and enjoy it with programs and activities from the Hancock Park District in the month of April. Michelle Rumschlag will tell us what's happening. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Tuesday, March 28th, 2023. Today is National Weed Appreciation Day, but it is not what you think. Ecologists remind Americans that many plants that we call weeds are beneficial to us and beneficial to our ecosystem. They uh, go on to say native people is what the uh, story says. Native people have used so-called weeds for food and medicine throughout history. And uh, we should all take the time to identify the many uses of plants that grow in our backyards, in our neighborhoods. But of course, do take caution to avoid herbicides and pesticides if picking weeds for your next garden salad. <laughs> Eating weeds. So, weed appreciation day today. Hear somebody uh, talk about that. Now you know what it's all about. It's not. Maybe what you think. Um, so this is uh, kind of interesting. One of the uh, first things you need to know this morning. Among the uh, first things, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories uh, of the day. is you're getting up and uh, heading to work this morning. Uh, maybe you should take some time the office today to get to know your coworkers. Uh, get to know them a little bit better. A stud, uh, study published this week. Uh, finds a connection between having strong friendships and better physical health outcomes. Positive social interactions were found to decrease blood pressure and heart rate and increase a person's ability to cope with stress. So make it a point to foster some sort of connection with somebody you work with because most of us spend a, you know, outside of the time with our spouse and our kids in home, in our homes, the workplace is the place that we spend most of our time. So uh, it would behoove us to make these positive connections, these positive social interactions with others, because it can be good for our health. Negative interactions, they say the, uh, the inverse is true too, negative interactions had an even stronger adverse effect on the body. So as as good for us as positive social impacts are, negative social impacts are even worse. The uh, study author says it's these ups and downs that can have the strongest impact. One uh, researcher stressed the importance of scheduling time with friends and providing mutual support in times of trouble. Uh, Again, the long and short of it is uh, make as many positive connections as you can with the people that you encounter it is good for you. So, if for no other reason, if you can't if you can't make positive social connections with other individuals because you're just a decent human being, <laughs> then at least do it for your health. You know that's the uh, bottom line here, I guess. Um, and for those times when speaking of health, when you have to seek medical intervention, this is a big medical news this morning. I saw this on the uh, Newswire, maybe one of the biggest stories of the day. As Paul Harvey used to be fond of saying, this day's news of most lasting significance could be this. Getting a vaccine might soon be a completely painless, jab-free experience. According to a team at the University of Texas at Dallas, scientists there have managed to create powdered vaccines that can be delivered painlessly with a puff of air and just spray it into the air, I guess, uh, and you would inhale it and that would be that. Uh, another plus to this, not only eliminating pain, but powdered vaccines don't need to be refrigerated or require the use of compressed gas. Uh, Professor Jeremiah Gassensmith began experimenting with the concept As he was bored during lockdown, Uh, his tinkering turned into a real project that could help those who are afraid of needles um, or just would prefer not to get a jab. The treatment, he says, feels like being hit with a Nerf bullet. The team is now using this technology to attempt to deliver skin cancer treatments. So imagine that.
1: Vaccines.
0: Vaccines without the needles sometime someday in the future dry powdered vaccines interesting and a couple of other uh, items among the first things you need to know this morning the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day um what does this say about the state of the economy for millions of americans according to data from adobe analytics um more consumers are using buy-now-pay-later uh, offers. You know, there's buy-now-pay-later things. Uh, there are a number of companies that that do this for just about everything, big purchases mostly, larger purchases like big-screen TV or maybe a vacation you can buy-now-pay-later. It's basically a modern-day layaway plan, only you get to take the stuff with you right away. Um And uh, no interest as long as you make the payments on time and so on and so forth. Well, these things are designed for big purchases, uh, things that you would not ordinarily buy out of your pocket. It's a way of getting you to spend. The reason why retailers love these things, they're not making interest on it. The reasons they love it because it leads to increased sales of things that people can't afford to buy out of pocket, but they can be persuaded to buy if they can make payments on it. Um, But this is kind of scary. Adobe Analytics uh, analyzed one trillion visits to American retail sites, and they find that more consumers are using buy now, pay later to pay for their groceries. The number increased by 40% in January and February of this year. Inflation has caused the price of food to rise nearly 10% over the past year. The rise of buy now, pay later usage for groceries... They say tells us that consumers are likely making bigger purchases online to take advantage of special promotions and stock up on things when they're on sale. Um, This is according to the insights team, Adobe, uh, Adobe digital Uh, three in five people have used a buy now pay later option at checkout to pay for their food. Uh, But of course they say, be sure to check the fine print to avoid late fees and, uh, high interest rates if you don't make uh, payments on time. So, boy, that is that is kind of scary that we've gotten to the point where we have to use buy now, pay later. We have to finance our food. You know, I get it, financing a you know major purchase or a car or certainly a house, something like that, but you'd think food should be something we could be able to afford out of pocket without having to finance it, but apparently not these days. Of course, like it says, there is uh, some of that people are just stocking up on things when they do go on sale. And that I can understand. So probably spending more than they would ordinarily spend in a regular just weekly trip to the grocery store. But just the same. It's kind of frightening data. And uh, how about this? Uh, Maybe this will ease some of your fears. Uh, We talk about AI, artificial intelligence, and the way it's taking over the world I think we had the story yesterday about all of the different jobs that may be displaced by artificial intelligence bots in the future. Um, well, this is kind of interesting, a good use of artificial intelligence. I know there's a reason for, you know, people to be concerned about you know, displacing workers, um, people using AI chat bots to write term papers and, and things like that. Um, cheat on tests or write entire novels, uh, These things, all of these negative uses of AI. But this could be a good one. A team at the University of Missouri has used artificial intelligence to analyze 400,000 customer reviews uh, of, of airlines. And they have, I mean, a, a much broader analysis than humans could ever. I mean, it's 400,000 consumer reviews of airlines and they have come up with a list of suggestions as ways to for airlines to better serve their customers as a result of they, they couldn't do this without AI uh, suggestions include more comfortable seating a redesign of the overhead bins on airline uh, airliners and more flexible booking policies uh, now this is just an example That they use, they said, artificial intelligence could actually help analyze large quantities of customer data because it is impossible to hear every customer and potential customer's voice, especially for larger companies like airlines. This, according to uh, this team at the University of Missouri, our software, they say, will significantly assist in thinking about things from a consumer perspective for big companies. Where consumers kind of get lost. They just kind of become a number. Well, AI, computers, thrive on numbers. And so they can analyze all of this stuff. Professor Sharhan Srinivas has used AI across other industries as well. Not just airlines, but insurance, clothing, uh, the fashion industry, uh, education, colleges, institutes of higher learning, and so on. And... uh so it's a way of uh, making businesses and entities better, better serving their customers than what they, you ever could do with just human interaction. So, kind of interesting. I just thought that was, uh, of all of the reasons to uh, be fearful or concerned about AI, there are some good things. There are some good applications. So just throw that out there. Here we go, some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Tuesday morning started. This
2: is okay. I'm Dave James on the Ohio News Network. In southern Ohio, a 7-year-old boy is dead and a man is charged after an ATV accident in Portsmouth on Sunday. Andrew Kinsey with our affiliate WBNS-TV in Columbus has more. The Selda County Sheriff saying the ATV struck a wire and caused both the man and child to be thrown from it. That child, 7-year-old Wyatt Moore, was taken to Nationwide Children's Hospital where he died. The man, 42-year-old Jeremy Bryant, was taken to Grant Medical Center and charged with involuntary manslaughter, child endangerment, and operating a- a motor vehicle under the influence. I'm Andrew Kinsey. The Columbus Zoo and Aquarium has regained an important title. Here's ONN's Tracy Townsend.
1: It now has its accreditation of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums back. The zoo lost it in 2021. The AZA removed the accreditation after an investigation into misuse of funds. It found the zoo lost more than $630,000 at the hands of former zoo officials. The new zoo president and CEO released this statement saying, in part, we are a much stronger institution today. The zoo has also added three other accreditations. I'm Tracy Townsend.
2: The Ohio State women's basketball team lost to Virginia Tech in the NCAA Elite Eight last night, 84 to 74. It ends their dream of a national championship. The Lady Buckeyes finished the season with a record of 28 and 8. AAA says gas is averaging 3.21 a gallon in Ohio. A year ago, it was 4.04. I'm Dave James on the Ohio News Network.
0: Well, you think about all of the ways our public health system has been tested over the past three years, starting with the pandemic, uh, the mental health issues, largely uh, much of the fallout from the pandemic, uh, natural disasters, which have been very much uh, in the news uh, here of late, and of course the ever more difficult fight against substance abuse, which we were talking about uh, just the other day on the program. We could go on and on and on, but you get the idea. The latest Ready or Not report from the Trust for America health examines our readiness to deal with these issues and joining us now is uh, ria farberman uh, tifa director of strategic communications and policy research and ria this is actually a report that you do annually you compile annually and have since 2003 i understand so kind of to put this into perspective overall in these past 20 years has our preparedness Improved. I guess I'm, I'm trying to get an idea of the baseline trajectory before we got hit with COVID, and, which threw everything for a loop.
1: Yes, I think that uh, certainly since the 9-11 attacks and since we've been doing this report in, in 2003, uh, our preparedness as a nation has improved. But we're, we're not yet fully prepared. And I think COVID act demonstrated that very strongly. We still have work to do. Um, a couple of things that, that COVID taught us is that we need to invest in the public health workforce. We need a larger public health workforce, and we need to invest in, in public health data systems. One of, the, one of the reasons why we weren't able to respond to COVID as quickly and effectively as we hoped we would be able to is, is data systems that were antiquated. So we need to invest in rebuilding our data systems so we can uh, detect disease threats early, and know where to put resources. Where where are disease threats most um, most dangerous? Where mm-hmm. are they happening? And where do we need to target resources? Well, we said from
0: the very beginning of the pandemic that there would come a time for sort of a post mortem where we look back on what we did well and, and what we didn't do so well and, and learn from that. So this uh, kind of serves as maybe um, a starting point for that. What were some of the other key findings uh, from this year's uh, Ready or Not report?
1: Well, well, let me just emphasize that our report is is not uh, a measure of states' rep- response to COVID. Specifically, that, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and honestly, every state had problems responding to COVID. It was a unprecedented emergency, mm-hmm. and federal leadership is very important during something like a pandemic. Sure, um, but but specifically, there are things that every state can do. Now, Ohio ranks high in our preparedness rankings, three rankings, high performance, middle performance, and low performance. And Ohio's in the high category. So you're doing some things well. Um, But as you mentioned, there are things that every state can do to improve our overall preparedness. The investment of funding is Mm -hmm. one thing I spoke about. Right. Other things are... um, Making sure that everyone in the state has access to paid time off is very important. Right now, about 53% of employed people in Ohio have access to paid time off. That's important, especially during a disease outbreak, because if you're not feeling well, if you've been, if you're infected yourself, or you've been exposed to someone who's infected, you want to stay home. Not only so you can feel better, but so you're not spreading the disease into the community. So that's important. Uh, flu vaccination rates is also something that we can do better on as a nation. Uh, The the flu vaccination target rate is 70%. Nationally, we're at about 50%. That's where you are in the state as well. So there's room for improvement there too.
0: Now, again, we're talking about... with respect to communicable diseases and, and, and things like that, infectious disease outbreaks, what about those uh, other uh, some of those other things that we mentioned with respect to mental health, uh, natural disasters, um, combating the uh, uh, substance abuse issues, so on and so forth?
1: Right. It's a good point because we don't know what the next emergency will be. We, we know there will be one, but we don't know what it will be. Um, and it could it could be dealing with chronic issues like substance misuse like the obesity crisis so we need to invest in a, a what we call a comprehensive public health system that provides preventative services uh, across a spectrum of issues certainly this year we've had an, an an unprecedented number of, of weather-related emergency. Look what's happening in California with wildfires right. and flooding. In Ohio, you had those trained derailments, which became public health emergencies. So we need to be prepared for the spectrum of issues. That's why building those baseline public health capacities and infrastructures is so important.
0: So it it, it sounds like one of the things that, that you're saying, and this is a, a point that's important, is that investing in this uh, system will serve will serve us well in all of these uh, areas. It's not that preparing for another pandemic is substantively different than preparing for a train derailment.
1: Right. Um, You know, if you have a strong public health system, you have to respond to and be ready to respond to a spectrum of potential emergencies. So having, you know, a public health workforce that's the right size and has relationships with community leaders is critical no matter what the emergency is going to happen having the information systems is critical having strong public health communications is critical one of the the really sad aspects of the pandemic is that it led to so much misinformation about health and about vaccines and um, that's something we're really concerned about so we want to have a public health workforce that's large enough um, and has the resources to be strong communicators and to help people understand where to get their health guidance.
0: It, it is a, uh, certainly a fair point that we learned during the pandemic that health experts are not always the best communications experts. Um, you also uh, touched on, and I want to go back and, and kind of highlight this uh, a little bit, the issues of equity uh, and, and the fact that certain segments of the population tend to be disproportionately affected uh, by these public health issues, whatever they may be. Right.
1: There certainly is. Uh, the, the data shows that particular communities, and it's often communities of color, older adults, people that live in rural areas, uh, have higher levels of chronic disease, for example, have uh, lower levels of access to health care services. So they're typically at higher risk during a public health emergency. People that live in flood prone areas are also at higher risk during uh-huh. a public health emergency. So there's a there's a connection between health disparities and emergency preparedness. And if we address health disparities we're also strengthening our, our emergency preparedness system. So does this report
0: then also make recommendations for both the state and federal level as to how to improve public health preparedness readiness?
1: Yes, and that's one of the, the, the major purposes of this report, twofold. One is we want to give local officials actionable data so they can see where are their vulnerabilities, their emergency preparedness vulnerabilities, so they can make plans to, to, to bridge those gaps. We also hope that the, this report gives a local official data that they could go to their governor or their state legislature and say, we need to invest in these areas. We need to improve our preparedness in these areas. And then we specifically make recommendations for the federal government, for Congress, for states, on what they need to do to improve readiness funding is a big part of it, of what we need to do. And it's sustained, increased funding and sustained funding year in and year out. Fair to say that historically, this has been an
0: area uh, where it's been very easy to overlook because by definition, these types of emergencies don't happen every day and they don't jump out of the headlines every day. And as such, these past three years, again, starting with the pandemic and what we have seen since, have been um, maybe the most incredible learning experience we've had in the past couple of decades.
1: You're right. Certainly, the pandemic has illuminated a number of weaknesses in our public health system that we need to address. You know, unfortunately, the pattern is that we only pay attention to public health during an emergency. Yeah. And once the emergency subsides, we go back to this old habit of under investing in public health. And we really need to get away from that. If we can investment in, invest in public health now, we will prevent more spending later, and we'll prevent hardship and we'll prevent injuries and deaths. So it's really an investment in being prepared And in prevent in prevention
0: that uh, old saying of the squeaky squeaky wheel gets the grease. We can't really afford to continue to do that with respect to uh, investment in public health readiness.
1: Right. And, you know, the pandemic is winding down, but there's other threats on the horizon. We've talked about these weather threats and every storm seems to get. Uh, more intense, and there seems to be more of them. Mm-hmm.
0: Again, uh, Rhea Farberman is the Director of Strategic Communications and Policy Research for the Trust for America's Health. They are out with their latest Ready or Not report, uh, examining our readiness to deal with uh, these issues. And you have uh, more information, in fact, the entire report on your website, right?
1: That's correct. And our web address is TFA, dot Rhea, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate the time.
0: So as you may know, the deadline for the May SAT test date is fast approaching. And the SAT, of course, is composed of three main sections, reading, writing and language and math. So why does the new book by Dr. Elizabeth Bro focus instead on history Joining us now is the author of History According to the SAT, Dr. Bro. Let's start with the obvious question. Why do you recommend studying up on history when there's no history section in the test? Hi,
3: good morning. Um, the reason is that about 40% of all of the reading material that kids are given on both the reading and the writing sections is history, is historical in content. You get for for example, on the writing test, you might get something that about an important invention um and that you know had historical you know implications for mm-hmm. a protest event that took place once um on the reading test, you get a lot of stuff that's from older documents um from the United States' founding you get a lot of stuff from the Revolutionary War period, and kids who don't know how to read that stuff often have no idea what they're reading, and they get very, very confused.
0: Yeah, so... (laughs) And then they make mistakes. Yeah, so uh, something that can easily go overlooked, but is uh, important to know, even though it's not specifically what is technically being tested on. So how do you decide then? I mean, obviously, history is a pretty broad subject. How do you decide what history... Students need to know as it relates to the SAT. Well, basically,
3: my metric was that if I saw it in even one passage or one question that could be confusing, I included it. Um, For example, I had a student this past summer who thought he might have heard of the French Revolution. He didn't know who Marie Antoinette was. And there was a passage that was written by um, Edmund Burke in the late 1700s, and he loved Marie Antoinette, and he hated the French Revolution. And my student had no clue what he was even talking about. Yeah. Because he never heard of it. Yeah. I don't know how you get to 10th or 11th grade in the United States and not know about the French Revolution, but... The fact is the kid did not know.
0: Well, let's step back a little bit and talk about some of those broader issues and implications here. I mean, what does the need for a basic study guide of historical context say about the state of history education in this country?
3: Well, I don't want to sound all critical or gloomy and doomy. But what I think is that because we don't have a national curriculum or any kind of national benchmark, We, the adults who, you know, if you think of what a well-educated adult is supposed to know, Mm -hmm. the folks who make up the test know all that stuff. They understand the history. They read it in college. They maybe wrote a paper on it, you know, whatever. But there's a lot of things that adults assume students know that they don't know. And I, I, come across this a lot because I teach many, many students who come from immigrant backgrounds. And so they might not even come from Western culture. And they don't know they don't have our cultural touchstones. And so since not all kids are learning the same thing, I think the SAT folks are picking this stuff because they think it's important for all students to know about the history of our country. It's sort of like something every American kid should know kind right. of thing. Right. But when the history teaching teaches it in a way that's kind of isolated or random seeming, kids don't always get the connections between events. And so they don't understand when things happened and how certain events affected other events. Um, my biggest one is this is something that's happened to me many, many times. Um, students of all ages and races have told me that American slavery ended in 1945 right around when we won World War II. Mm. You know, if you think that, you're going to be confused.
0: Well, and and that actually kind of leads to the next question that I uh, kind of want to get your thoughts on and kind of explore a little bit. As we have seen in recent years, history has become something of a lightning rod of controversy. What is taught and how it is taught is at the center of what we would call the culture wars that are driving so much of our politics. So, it kind of begs the question, is it even possible to teach history in this environment, as you mentioned, to have a, some sort of national benchmark standard given the environment that we live in today?
3: Well, it's a very complicated question, and I don't pretend to have an easy answer. However, what I have done when I'm teaching is students might not like historical facts. I mean, I don't like some of the historical facts, Mm -hmm. but what we do with that is up to us. You know, if something happened and it's ugly, we need to look at it. And I think a lot of the objections are basically saying we don't want our students to know about bad things that we did in the past. I read recently about a student in Florida, a white student who said he was made to feel guilty about slavery. Well, those folks did it and you weren't alive yet. So it's really not on you. right? And, you know, I'm white and, you know, I can't help it. I was born white. Am I responsible for the racism of other white people? Not really. But what I am responsible for is how I choose to act towards people who feel that maybe they have been disrespected or harmed by policies that were in place before we were both born. And so I think you have to listen to them and acknowledge, yes, Past policies have been harmful to you yeah. and harmful to your family. And what I want to do now, since I can't change the past,
0: is work to fix it in the present. Have we also lost sight of the idea that that two different things can be true at the same time? For example, Christopher Columbus can be a, a great explorer, but also uh, have done some horrible things. Uh, When he arrived in the new world, both both of those things are true. Yeah. Right. Just like Pablo
3: Picasso was a great artist, but he didn't treat women well. Right. Some of our greatest American authors have been racist, sexist, Mm -hmm. anti-Semitic. I'm Jewish. Do I... Not read Fitzgerald, of course not. Yeah. But when it's when I get to an anti-Semitic comment in his book, I certainly talk about it with my students. Yeah. Whether they're Jewish or not. mm Hmm. Um, so it's,
0: you know. Um, so it's really a loss of context, which again kind of circles back to what your book uh, hopes to put history into context so that kids can understand it when the, with respect to the SAT. And does that, uh, right. does that show sort of the manifestation of the way we have approached history in recent years uh, now manifests itself in the difficulty that kids have with the historical-based questions on the SAT? It's just an example of that.
3: Right. Well, look, the, the victor always gets to write the history book. For centuries in this country, the folks who got to do that were, for the most part, white men. And, you know, but throughout the 20th century and even earlier, there have been other groups who are saying, no, our experiences count and we want to be part of the historical record. Because if you only tell one side of the story, you Mm -hmm. haven't got the whole picture. So you tell the story that the victors tell. But then if the losers have a different perspective, you include that. So then people can see. I grew up in a family that was pretty liberal. When I was in college, I took a class on the Vietnam War. And all I knew was the anti-war stuff. Yeah. And what I learned in that class taught me to see the entire war differently. Because it's not just the anti-war story. It's the story of so many different things. And that to understand it all, you have to look at both sides. I think that's responsible history.
0: One other... Point that I'm, I'm curious to get your take on with respect to the SAT itself. There are a growing number of colleges and universities that are dropping their entrance exam requirements altogether. Is the SAT even relevant anymore? I don't know if this test is relevant or not, but I think there has to be something because
3: until we have some sort of guarantee that, you know, a high school diploma from a small town in Alabama is going to have the same quality and breadth of education that a student, say, in an an elite Manhattan school or something. Yeah. You know, what do kids in North Dakota learn versus kids in Texas versus, you know, each state is setting its own standards and, you know, nobody gets four years of history anymore in high school. Right. And they don't get uh, any kind of sense of of, a timeline that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Again, the book is uh, History According to the SAT, sort of a study guide of the historical context of the questions that uh, students will see on the SAT, even though there's not a history section per se. Dr. Elizabeth Bro is the uh, author. And do you have a website in conjunction with the book we can guide folks to? I sure do. It's called
3: History According to SAT.com.
0: Dr. Bro, thanks very much All for right, taking the thank time. thank you. We appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me. Take
2: care. 20 years of Making Mornings Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. So here's the deal.
0: Uh, We know about all of the dangers of TikTok and the concerns over uh, TikTok and and all of that. But at least one man in uh, northern Colorado Uh, has turned to TikTok in an effort to save his marriage. Allow me to explain. Apparently, Jay Rupp uh, found a checkbook in his car. Not his checkbook, a random checkbook belonging to some woman named Jessica. And that led his wife to think he was having an affair. Uh, Mr. Rupp posted a video about the incident on TikTok, hoping to clear up the entire situation. He said, if your name is Jessica and you live in northern Colorado, I need you to check your voicemail right away because I have your checkbook. My wife thinks we're having an affair and I don't know how to fix this. He explained how he and his wife were going to the post office to get passports for their kids for an upcoming cruise. At the post office, he told his wife to check the center console for his checkbook. Uh, Yet when his wife opened the checkbook, she found that it belonged to a woman named Jessica. Uh, After a a search on Google, the uh, couple found that Jessica works in the same town that Mr. Rupp is a teacher in. And that might explain how it happened. I mean, they might have crossed paths at some point and they both set their checkbooks down and they picked up the wrong one. But uh, the way Mr. Rupp's wife looks at it, <laughs> he, he's he got some explaining to do. To be clear, he says in the video, my wife and I love each other, but she's only 25% convinced that I'm not cheating on her, which is uh, which is a problem. Uh, Mr. Rupp's video has received over 4 million views, and one of them did happen to be the very Jessica who owned that checkbook in question. Jessica uh, responded to the initial video and has come forward as the person of interest saying, my name is Jessica. I live in Northern Colorado. I never answer my phone and I never listen to voicemails. So that's why I didn't get your message. (laughs) She then uh, played the voicemail that Mr. Rupp's wife left and said that the two had been in contact to straighten out the issue. Clear up the confusion. So... Uh, hopefully TikTok has saved this guy's marriage, but how um, how embarrassing would that be? See, I don't have checks. I did. I haven't had checks uh, for my checking account in in a long time. Use you know electronic payments and debit cards and everything. I've never had a need for checks. This is why. <laughs> this is why you can avoid all of that and just get rid of checks. Uh speaking of uh, online, this actually went viral online. Uh interesting story. Um indeed, you're familiar with uh, the job search site uh, website uh, Indeed, the uh, platform. Well, they recently laid off like over 2000 workers, which that tells you something about the economy when a job placement platform is laying off workers. That's you know <laughs> the economy is rough. Uh, But after Indeed laid off all of these workers, one team member uh, (laughs) took a black bag and went on a snack uh, snack snagging spree. Larry Lee, now a former employee of the uh, platform in Singapore, uh, posted a video of himself going on one final office snack run (laughs) and stashing away chips and cookies and noodles and anything that the company provides in the lunchroom for free he took as much as he could uh, in the video he says I'm trying not to be suspicious but as one commenter posted what are they gonna do fire you mm. <laughs> all right anyway just some fun online stuff couple of other uh, items in the uh, broken news someone someone literally left a boat and uh, in Pennsylvania's North Shore in Pittsburgh, and authorities are trying to figure out how to have it removed legally. See, now this is a report in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Reports that someone tied their 31-foot bay liner, tied the boat up on the Allegheny River back in July or August. No one knows exactly how long it's been there. But they tied it up uh, at the dock and then never came back for it. Apparently, the owner, who wasn't identified for privacy reasons, does not want the boat back and is not cooperating. The authorities are saying, hey, come get your boat. And he's like, no, I don't want it. The uh, local uh, sports and exhibition authority in Pittsburgh and uh, the county of Allegheny County, uh, which oversees that portion of the river, is demanding that the boat be removed. Incidentally, tourists and hikers have allegedly been complaining about the supposed eyesore. The problem is the boat has become a hot potato of sorts with multiple entities uh, screaming, not it, when it comes to who can remove the boat. Uh, Public Works said the city is not on the hook for this and they have washed their hands of it. The U.S. Coast Guard has done the same. The Army Corps of Engineers won't remove it. The Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission has stepped up to take care of the situation, but officials say The water is a bit murky on this. The difficulty is that the law is set up to protect boat owners from having their boats stolen. Uh, You can't just claim a boat if you find it and it's been supposedly abandoned. You just can't do that. And so there is a process for changing ownership without an owner's participation, and it takes a while. (laughs) And before they can give it the heave-ho, the Environmental Protection Agency has to get involved checking the boat for any pollutants, like uh, leaking oil or fuel. And if the EPA does find pollutants, that starts a whole other legal process. <laughs> so they've got this abandoned boat that they're trying to get rid of, and they'll make can figure out how to do it. <laughs> uh, all of that red tape that's supposed to protect people is now... Well, could have guessed... Um, and how about this in the uh, broken news? Who knew that hitting a cow on an interstate would be so lucrative? One guy who collided with a cow has been awarded over a million dollars. Stefan Lepkowski was driving on Interstate 395 in Montville, Connecticut, when he struck a roaming cow, which... You wouldn't think that there would be a cow in the middle of the highway, but there it was. And he could not avoid it. He slammed into the cow. Um, apparently, the bovine was said to have broken through a nearby fence and bolted onto the highway. Labkowski was treated by a uh, doctor. By the way, uh, the name of uh, Mr. Labkowski's uh, doctor, Dr. Hamburger. I kid you not. That's, But that's a separate part of the story. Uh, so, when suing for damages, a prospective jury member with the uh, on, on the jury, uh, let's see, here. oh, and when suing for damages, his name, his doctor's name is Doctor uh, Hamburger. Uh, a prospective jury member in the trial when he sued for damages had to be dismissed for personal reasons. His name, Mister Burger. Again, it's crazy. Anyway, uh, Mr. Lapkowski sued for lost wages and medical bills. He claims the incident left him with post-traumatic stress disorder, <laughs> which, striking a cow on the highway would do that, I would think. Uh, in the end, he was awarded1.3 million dollars. The defendant in the case appealed the settlement, noting the jury spent less than an hour deliberating. They wrote in their request uh, in their request filing that the $1 million dollar settlement of non-economic damages, is not supported by the evidence and accused the jury of being potentially corrupted or prejudiced. We'll see. But that's crazy. $1.3 million uh, for striking a cow on the highway. What I want to know is, how can I strike a cow on the highway? What? Give me... Let me strike a cow on the highway. Um... There you go. That is today's Broken News Report, an update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming.
2: And yet another major brand just announced is halting all social media advertising. The two most overused and abused words in advertising are truth and trust. They are the two most precious commodities for all brands, big and small, as an advertiser. You have to trust your partners to protect your brand's truth using the media consumer's trust. Radio, it's on. This message provided by WFIN.
0: Time now for your daily download, the numbers behind the news, and the statistics that shape our lives. So show of hands, who still has to file their taxes yet? We're getting crunch time now. April 18th, right around the corner. And I have to admit, I am among that group that has yet to file. I Normally, I don't wait this long, but I have been a real procrastinator this year. Uh, according to a new survey, 2,000 U.S. adults, 500 of whom are CPAs and bookkeepers, uh, they looked at uh, some of the uh, pain points around tax season. Now they're getting into crunch time. Most of those in the survey say that they start filing their taxes in February, the most popular month to uh, file, 39 percent. Twenty eight percent say March is the uh, is the month they start. We're running out of time in March. So Um, that said, the average tax professional in the survey says that 41 percent, 41 percent of people, they say, wait too long to file their taxes, one in six. Recommend that people actually start putting together their tax returns as early as January. You want to know why we don't? Nearly half of Americans, 48%, say they get a headache just thinking about their taxes. (laughs) That's why we don't start in January. Um, As for what to do with your refund. This was kind of interesting. 28% in the survey say even before they get the refund, they know where it's going. They've already spent it before they get it. And, and where are we spending it? Well, 45% plan to spend, spend their uh, tax refund money to pay off bills. That's a very wise thing to do. 19% uh, say that they are planning on going on, on a vacation with their tax refund windfall. It's their vacation fund. But this was kind of interesting and maybe a sign of the times. 30% in the survey, 30% of the people say that they will use their tax refund to purchase essential items for their household, like even groceries. So I guess it's another sign that spring has sprung. We get into fog season. We're past the snow. (laughs) And uh, so we get into fog season now. Uh, Like we had this morning, frozen fog, no less. Frozen fog, no less. But uh, it is timed with the uh, new season. Get out uh, and uh, break out of your cabin fever a little bit. Got programs and activities uh, in the month of April to talk about from the Hancock Park District. Michelle Rumschlag is here again. It's hard to believe we're talking about April already, but here we are.
4: And it's it's like slowly warming up. I mean we had those weird like sixty degree days in January they're getting they're getting to be
0: more the rule rather than the exception i mean you you start in late March and early April where every occasionally you'll get a nice day right, and then by the end of April, that will be the rule, and you will get an occasionally cold day, you know, so right I mean we're
4: getting gonna... we're getting there. <laughs> like, but yeah, I mean, I had to scrape my car this morning <laughs> to come in. So it was like, well, it's still March and it's still a weird. Yeah. I mean, it's technically spring, but yet it's that weird kind of.
0: Yeah. all right Weathering.
4: What's going right. on in
0: uh, April?
4: Well, we've got lots of activities happening again for all April and May programs. Go to Hancockparks.com. Um, so on Tuesday, April 4th. Uh, We're having a program for six to 10-year-olds out at the Oakwoods Nature Preserve in the Discovery Center. Um, It's going to be on bird's nest. And so, of course, this is a time of year, you know, of course, with the lengthening of the daylight, the birds are singing more. Mm -hmm. And it's that time of year where they're trying to find a mate. And, of course, starting of bird nesting season. And so kids will be able to view the, we have a quite collection, actually, of bird nests. So they'll be able to view those, learn about them. Of course, why birds build them, how they build them, um, and then they'll get to make their own. So there's no no cost, no registration. Just show up again, 6 o'clock, April 4th, Tuesday evening for kids ages 6 to 10.
0: Can you, can you tell what birds they are just by the nest?
4: Yes. I mean, kind of. I mean, some people, I, I can do a few. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by size. So obviously, the bigger the nest, the bigger Sorry. the bird. Yeah. Yeah. But there's some that are obvious, like like a Baltimore Oreo makes a pouch. And they weave hmm. it and so that is a pouch kind of hanging from a tree. Oh, okay. Um certain oh, of course a robin uses mud and then grass is what they're most
0: familiar with, yeah. That's
4: probably what you're most familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um there's certain birds that will use a bird's nest. So they're called cavity nesters. They normally nest in a hole in a tree. So right. like a woodpecker or even a bluebird. Now a bluebird's not making that hole, but they will move into either a natural cavity or an old woodpecker. Okay. Nest. So people will if you put up a birdhouse I guess, this, I mean, the, the fancy ones you, so can, you can get at like Hobby Lobby are probably not going to attract birds. And you should probably plug the hole because you're just going to get house sparrows, and those aren't the most attractive birds yeah. to have in your yard. Yeah. So if you want to attract a certain kind of bird, you want to look that up. Like cardinals and robins do not live in birdhouses, certain okay. types of birds do. So there's a little homework there. And okay. a lot of people do put up bluebird boxes yeah. to attract the bluebirds to their yards. Um and then on up. I mean you can put up an owl box and try to get an yeah. owl in your yard. So yeah. right. So you can look at mm-hmm. the size of the nest and then the materials
0: to get an idea. To of kind what of get an idea you've got
4: what bird right, you've got. So if you're seeing yeah. nests now, it's last year's But there might, you know, I'm I'm not sure when, I mean, again, this is kind of the season.
0: Yeah. You know, it's still
4: early. We have
0: a a tree right outside of our kitchen window that uh, is actually below window level that the birds always, so you can always look out and see what's going on from uh, above, you know, so it's really,
4: really cool. So,
0: yeah, uh, neat stuff. Okay, and uh, what else is going on in the uh, month of April?
4: Well, on Monday, April 10th, uh, we're having a trail cleanup. Um, out at Litzenbrook Memorial Woods, this is for all ages, happening at 3 o'clock. Just meet out at the gatehouse. And so we're going to take a hike on one of our trails. We'll pick up any trash if there's some on there. And then just kind of talk about, um, again, effects of trash and pollution and things like that. And then, of course, find anything along the way. Um, you know, wild, spring wildflower season is starting to be upon us. So mm-hmm. um, hopefully by then we'll have a few wildflowers up. So, again, if you want to help kind of clean up the trails.
0: Do a little um, spring cleaning.
4: Yeah, for the parks. got to do it. Monday, April 10th, 3 o'clock out at Litzenburg.
0: All righty. What else you got on your list here?
4: Well, um, staying out at Litzenburg for our monthly McKinnis House program, it's going to be on Sunday, April 23rd. Of course, from 1 to 4, um, pop in at any time. And it, this one's going to be on chicken and eggs. Okay. And so, of course, um, Pioneers would have had all kinds of farm animals would have had chickens, would have had eggs, and just talking about them, the uses that they would have had with those eggs, I mean, just think of the ways we use them,
1: mm-hmm. know, and the
4: pioneers would have been the same way. Right. You know, you, you cook the eggs in different ways, you use it in your baking, um, of course, then the, you know, also with your chickens, um, we'll have some live chickens on hand in the wagon shed to look at, um, and nothing beats like a fresh farm egg. Yes. So... Um, Absolutely. So it'll just be kind of talking about that, and again, you know how the pioneers would have used. Well, those, I tell
0: you what, yeah. the pioneers that era would have really been excited about the uh, break in the weather, wouldn't they? I mean, oh right. You I mean, talk about us yes. getting cabin fever; it would have been even more so. Well, back then. And,
4: and it's the starting of things greening. So yeah. I mean, think about it. Since like you know October, November, you're eating all of your root vegetables beans, potatoes, carrots, turnips, things like that mm-hmm. that you have and then of course your pickled salted eggs, yeah. pork yeah. kind of thing. Exactly. You don't have fresh green stuff mm-hmm. and so the becoming the beginning of this, you know, spring season would have been Very the greening of things yeah. and so your herbs and your plants and they they would be on watch. I mean, yeah. imagine having lettuce Or people that eat a lot of vegetable. I eat cucumbers year-round. I love them. But right, only being able to like, Mm -hmm. okay, when is it? And then planting season. I mean, it would be watching it. And again, they would have their ways to kind of figure out. I mean, I'm sure they were very meticulous with, like today, this weird frosty, you know, Mm -hmm. fog. You know, or when there's frosts later into the season... They they wouldn't have known that. I mean we kinda get that warning, hey, cover your plants you've already planted. Good point. They don't they don't know yeah. that and so they really would watch and probably wouldn't put things in the ground until they were sure Yeah. You know, th- that it yeah. was going to be safe and not kill anything. Yeah. Of course, they would do everything from seed. Mm-hmm. Um, they wouldn't go out and buy plants or anything like that. Right. But uh, yeah.
0: Very exciting time uh, in the uh, pioneer days. Yes. And uh, anything else to uh, highlight in the month of April?
4: Well, just want to let everybody know, Um, again, our spring programming, but then also our summer camps. And some of our camps are already filled. Like, people are getting on and signing up. So a lot of our one-day camps, we do a week in June and August. Mm -hmm. We have 10 one-days. There's only three that have availability right now. Okay. Like, most of our August ones are filled, Um, again. But we still have other camp opportunities, some multi-day things throughout the summer. And so um, that's something. And I I keep, I mean, we fill them, and I never know when. And this seems early for March. I mean, we usually do, but I mean... To have almost all of our one days filled in by the end of March yeah, I, is, is we crazy. Mentioned it. We mentioned it last month,
0: uh, Right. Wait, and this is why, because a lot of them are already filled People up. People so. know,
4: and they get on there. So, again, HancockParks.com for the rest of the spring programming and then all of our summer camp
0: programming. Very good. We have that link up at our webpage as well, goodmornings.net. you getting a little cabin fever, lots of uh, ways to get outdoors and enjoy uh, the uh, great uh, resources at the parks. Michelle Roomslog the Hancock Park District with us this morning. Michelle, thanks very much.
4: Thanks for having me. And that
0: will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about the topics that we talk about each and every day on the program at our webpage. And that, of course, is goodmornings.net. So check us out online. Coming up tomorrow on the program, every parent's nightmare is to lose a child. Denny Meek has experienced that nightmare not once, not twice, but three times. She'll speak about her award-winning memoir, Still Standing, A Mother's Raw Journey from the Shadows of Loss to the Dawning of Hope. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.